Yeah. Alright, that's asking too much in a Baptist church. <laughs> Alright. Uh, chapter 13. Kindle the fire in corporate worship. Let's start out first of all with what is worship? Okay. Okay. Good. What else? Okay. So sometimes we talk about, um, like I remember one of the topics that used to come up a lot when I was in youth group was uh, this idea of secular versus sacred that come up for you guys at all and things you've read or thought about. Um, so, and the argument, as I recall, had to do with the fact that, um, no, let's get back over here. No, you're fine, you're fine. Um, had to do with the idea that there is a sense in which we set aside particular times devoted to worshiping God, and there is also a sense in which the entirety of our lives ought to be done in worship to God. So, sometimes we misuse whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to God's glory, because in the context, it's not, inst it's not well, if you eat or drink or anything, like, like the eating and drinking isn't important, like, that's actually what Paul's talking about to the Corinthians is the eating and drinking part. So he's saying, if you eat or drink or anything else that you do, do it to God's glory. And so there's a sense in which all of our lives are supposed to be worship. There's also a sense in which we set aside times as worship either. Uh, and this goes into the next question. What's the difference between public or in private worship? Okay. Yeah, by yourself, maybe with a small group, with your family, that kind of thing. Um, which one is more important? Yeah, all right. So, we ought to... Uh, what, are, what are the means by which we worship God? Praying. Okay. Which singing is kind of, to some extent, praying with music or something, right? Um, what about God's Word? We, reading God's Word, meditating God's Word, all those things would be aspects of worship. And so, it's going to make the argument in this chapter that essentially, in the context of the church gathering together, we're bringing together all of these habits of grace that, we, that we've talked about so far. God's Word, prayer and now fellowship all together combining in this thing called worship. He says, um, or actually, maybe you have somebody read those two verses, Revelation 5.11 and Hebrews 12.22. Who would like to do the first one? Okay, Kelly, and then who would like to do the Hebrews passage? Evan? Okay, thanks.
So there's a sense in which we anticipate a great gathering of all of God's creatures worshiping and praising him. I mean, on the one hand it's a popular was a popular misconception that heaven is just sitting on a cloud playing a harp wearing some sort of weird outfit. But there's also a sense in which it's true. We do, are going to be in God's presence in order to worship him, and I think that's going to be not only what we see here there is um, there are other ways in which God can be worshipped as in God for example sends his angels his messengers to do different things and has different tasks for them and it's not as though they were only and always praising him but that was a significant part of what they were supposed to do and probably a significant part of what will characterize our existence in heaven and so um, both in what we look forward to and what we experience now as we gather as God's people we worship God. He says, while the corporate worship of Jesus by the church universal is an essential element in our great destiny, it is the corporate worship of Jesus by the church local that is a vital means of God's grace in getting us there. Corporate worship is the single most important means of grace and our greatest weapon in the fight for joy because like no other means, corporate worship combines all three principles of God's ongoing grace, his word, prayer, and fellowship. It is corporate worship with its preaching and sacraments and collective praises, confessions, petitions, and thanksgivings, which most acutely brings together the gifts of God's voice, his ear, and his body. Do you agree with that statement? What are your thoughts on it? Why or why not? Yeah, good. When you say you don't remember, like... Well, I'm, I'm just saying... When, when I think about prayer, I don't... There aren't a bunch of verses that come in my head that says... Uh, I guess Paul tells people in the English letters to write to them, or to pray. Mm-hmm. But, I don't know, just the wording, pray as a group, Yeah, so, and I guess what I would say in response to that is, um, do we feel like this statement is untrue because we tend to be individualistic in our society, or do we feel like it's untrue because the Bible doesn't support it? So that's part of the tension in my mind, because I read that and I had a similar response. Well, of course, if you read your Bible and pray every day at home, you're good, you know, but I mean, I think there is a sense in which we can downplay the value of these three elements coming together in the context of the church service. Like, I mean, on the one hand, I don't want to guilt people into saying, okay, you skipped today because it's icy. Clearly, you don't love Jesus. 
because I don't want to see people get hurt and all of those sorts of things. On the other hand, if we go to the other extreme and we're like, it doesn't matter at all, then, I mean, and again. I guess I would just say, I don't, I don't know that we could say it's the single most important. It's, I, I think that there's probably equal importance of our own private worship and our corporate worship. Yeah. But let's think about it from this perspective. Why are we on earth? Okay, and I would probably put the one as kind of a subset of the other, right? Spreading the gospel is one of the means by which we worship God. So, go ahead. Yeah. Okay, which is basically worship, more or less. So, if worship is the thing that we're put on earth to do, I think that's where, why he's arguing it's the most important thing. Like, like I don't think he's saying... Fellowship is the most important means of grace. I think he's saying worship is the thing that God made us to do, and when we gather to worship, we have an intersection of all of us together involving the word, the prayer, and the fellowship. So, again, I'm not sure there's a 100% right answer. You could, you, could, um, you could nuance it. You could say, you know, one of the most... I mean, but I think his, his, his point is... This is a unique blessing and privilege that God has given to us to gather as his people through which all of these other elements are, are, are combined. So, um, moves on to another question, which is the, the issue of talking about worship as a means of grace is tricky because, as John Piper cautions us, true worship is not a means to anything. Worship is an end in itself. We do not eat the feast of worship as a means to anything else. Happiness in God, which is the heart of worship, is the end of all our seeking. Nothing beyond it can be sought as a higher goal. True worship cannot be performed as a means to some other experience. And so the question that I had based on that quote, which I think is something that we would expect John Piper to say based on what we know of his books and writings and, and sermons and so forth, but I think he, he makes a good point. Can worship be a means to something else if God made us to worship Him. Yeah. So, going back to what we were talking about a minute ago, I think the difficulty that he finds himself in when he's writing this chapter is that you want to talk about worship in connection with fellowship, but there's also a sense in which worship is the thing that fellowship points to or moves toward as opposed to being something under it. Like, like so when we talk about word, for example, we talked about uh, read... We talked about meditate. We talked about apply, right? 
And then prayer we talked about alone, talked about together. And then fellowship we talked about like, I don't know, I think last week was kind of more along the lines of like the importance of fellowship and some of those sorts of things. And so there's a sense in which there's not maybe another great place in the book to talk about worship, but worship is kind of the thing that sums up all of the other things rather than being a heading under fellowship. So I think that's some of the tension that he's trying to wrestle through in this chapter. What do you guys think? Yeah. I think that worship should be the thing that continues us. Yeah. And more majority of the time we might do all of those underlying things even without it. Okay. Yeah. So what would it look like to gather for fellowship and do the things that we would, like, um, I've heard some of my students talk about a worship time at their church, like, like as a verb, like, let's do worship, like that kind of thing. We have that idea that when we gather, worship automatically happens because we're doing the things associated with worship. We're singing, we're reading God's Word, we're praying. So what would it look like for us to be doing all those things, sort of checking off all those boxes, but not actually worshiping God? Okay, give me specifics, though. <laughs> Specifically, what does it look like for you when you do the stuff, but you're not actually worshiping God? Okay. Good. I think there's several different ways we could go, right? Evan, you have something? Think about John 4.24. Jesus said, Those that worship me must worship me in spirit and in truth. What was the issue for the Samaritans in terms of their worship in John 4 that he talks to the women of the well about? Okay. But what was the thing that they got hung up on? What was her question? Where do we worship? This mountain or that mountain? What was the thing that the Jews got hung up with with regard to worship? Specifically the Pharisees, but probably the people in general because the Pharisees had significant influence on them. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, are we checking off the right boxes? Are we, are we following all the details of the law? Well, forgetting what the whole point of the law was about. The point of the law was not to follow the law. The point of the law was to express obedience in the context of a relationship with God. 
And so when we get hung up on the place, we are in the church building. For the actions, we have sung a hymn. Rather than thinking about who we're singing to and why we're gathering in the building, we're not worshiping, right? And um, I think this is something that we struggle with if we sort of grow up in church because we or if we've been in church a long time, because it's just such a natural part of our lives that there is a sense in which gathering for church and assuming that worship happens is kind of like saying that you're Italian and that means that you're Catholic and that's just kind of a fact of life rather than anything that has a huge impact on your heart, like we were talking about a few minutes ago. Um, So... Christianity should be more than just a habit of life that we go through that doesn't lead us to God. Um, yeah. I like the, the mindset that pops up in my head. The, the one that we are approaching under church of the doctrine. Yeah. And that ebbs and flows, and um, we'll, I think when we go, he talks about five blessings of worship on the right-hand column. We'll get to those in a minute. I think it sort of ties some of those ideas together well. One important distinction is to make between the essence of worship as joy in God and the context of corporate worship as the gathered assembly. The answer is that we should not be self-consciously preoccupied with how we're being strengthened or what grace we're receiving. Corporate worship is a means of grace, not when we're caught up with what we're doing, but when we experience the secret of worship, the joy of self-forgetfulness, as we become preoccupied together with Jesus and his manifold perfections. Um, Do you agree that the secret of joy or of worship is self-forgetfulness? What do you suppose he means by that? What are some things that would be unbiblical ways to understand that concept, the idea of self-forgetfulness? Okay. What about sort of the Far Eastern idea of the goal is to become one with a all-pervading force and to lose all sense of self? I mean, that is not the biblical picture. The biblical picture, I think, is, is exemplified for us by Jesus. Jesus did not cease to exist in the context of his obedience to God the Father. It was rather a, an element of him being submitted to the will of God the Father as opposed to him 
ceasing to exist as a distinct person, I guess would be probably be a good way of saying it. And so our goal as Christians is not to... Um, some of the more mystical or uh, devotional streams of Christianity have kind of, I think, strayed too close to some of the, the, the ideas of, like, we all just sort of get wrapped up in God and now we're a part of God and there's nothing of ourselves left. It's not that we become God in that sense, it's rather that we are in obedience to God as distinct beings, but connect us so closely with God that we're doing what He wants us to do, right? That, okay. Okay. Good. Yeah, I think that's a good example. Any other thoughts on that before we go to the five blessings? All right, he talks about, let me read you this quote here. I didn't have room for it on the page, but I think it's a helpful quote. See then this application to corporate worship in the summary by Piper. All genuine emotion is an end in itself. It is not consciously caused as a means to something else. This does not mean that we cannot or should not seek to have certain feelings. We should and we can. We can put ourselves in situations like corporate worship where the feeling may be more readily kindled. But in the moment of authentic emotion, the calculation vanishes. We are transported, perhaps only for seconds, above the reasoning work of the mind, and we experience feeling without reference to logical or practical implications. And he says after that, in this way, corporate worship, which in, no sen in one sense is no means to anything else, is a powerful, even the most powerful, means of God's grace for the Christian life. So come to corporate worship for the many blessings and then let the calculations vanish as you lose yourself in the blessed. Get yourself there on a slow day with a reminder about how good it will be for you if you do. And as the gathering begins, go hard after the goodness of God and seek to forget yourself as you focus on His Son. What do you think about that quote, the idea of this calculation versus emotion? What, what, what point do you think he's making there? Yeah. Right. Just going, hoping that your emotions get stirred up. I think he's also saying, too, that there's a sense in which, well, regardless of what this is, what he's saying in the quote, this is something that I've observed. If we have had a heritage of strong teaching from God's Word in the context of the church that we attend, it is easy for us to look at our faith as merely an intellectual exercise, which is not to say that um, truth is tied to specific statements that need to be thought about and processed by our minds. But, um, and this is something that I think permeates Piper's work and is a good point. He gives the illustration of if a husband comes to his wife on their anniversary, here's the flowers that I must give to you because this is the day on which we were married. I hope you enjoy them as a sincere token of my affection. 
he's probably going to get slapped, right? Or at the very least, she's going to be displeased that it's just this empty sort of thing. I think that's the point that he's making here. When we come before God, there's a bunch of truth that's going on in our minds, but this is a relationship with a person, not just with a ritual, right? Yeah, and sometimes we get accused of worshiping the Bible, but I, don't, I think you can have a proper reverence for the Bible as the means by which God has communicated himself and we can know him accurately while recognizing that it points us to God. The danger on the one side is we think that just knowing the facts in a book is enough. We don't have a connection with the person. The danger on the other side that some of the other streams of Christianity and, and later heresy have strayed into is well, I can just know God and, and I sort of bypass the Bible and you just sort of have this experience and this connection with God. So, yeah, there's a variety of things uh, going on there. Evan, do you want to... Somebody's down there by the door. Thanks. Um, yeah. Just lots of things to think about here. So we'll move on for sake of time. Five blessings from worship. What can worship accomplish in our lives? These all start with A, so. Awakening. Do you ever come to church and you feel like, I don't really want to be at church? You're not going to lose points if you say yes, because I've, I've been there and done this. Yes. yes, okay. Ideally, not regularly, but sometimes, you know, there's just days when you want to sleep in or you want to stay home or you just don't feel like being around other people or for whatever reason is going on. And um, uh, he gives the example of Psalm 73 where the psalmist is despairing over how the wicked are prospering. And then he says, When I went, thought to understand this, it seemed a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. And then in the context of worship, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So then he says this, instead of staying away from corporate worship, when we sense ourselves to be spiritually lethargic, precisely what we need more than ever is the awakening of worship. When we need most to remind our souls, for me it is good to be near God. So, um, What's the idea of awakening? In the way that he's using it here. I think, that's, I think that's very much the point that he's making. And the idea of awakening, um, uh, we talk about in the history of our country, the Great Awakening, and we think of it in the context of um, people trusting Christ for the first time. But there's also a sense in which 
as God's people, we need to be awakened, we need to be stirred, we need to be in the context with other believers for God to work in us and so forth. So, uh, The second one he says here is assurance. Uh, he gives the example of people that seem like they're all alone in history. Um, Elijah, for example, 1 Kings 19. He said, God made us for community and named her the church, and being a part of this great local and global community plays an important role in assuring us not only that we are not deceiving ourselves and pretending our profession is credible, but also that we truly know whom we have believed. And worship in the local church points us to the worship of the universal church and that Jesus has a people from many nations and one day will include every nation. So we tend to think of assurance strictly as an individual um, sense that I am a Christian, right? So do you have assurance of your salvation? Yes, I'm convinced that I'm a Christian. But there is... Um, I can't remember what number it is. Faith of Our Fathers. Anybody know offhand? Yeah, Corey's not here. Uh, 417. Turn there in your hymnal. I think this illustrates well this, this point. Um, the first verse, faith of our fathers living still in spite of dungeon, fire, and sword. Oh, how our hearts beat high with joy whene'er we hear that glorious word. That has less to do with, am I a Christian, more to do with what? He had to sort of sum it up in one word. perseverance, maybe even confidence, something along those lines, right? Which is more than just, am I saved, but is, I know that this faith is real and that I'm following the one true God and I'm doing it with other people, like that kind of idea. The second verse has a similar idea, but brings an idea of martyrdom. The third verse, faith of our fathers, we will strive to win all nations unto thee, and through the truth that comes from God, mankind then shall be truly free. So, um, and then the last verse, Faith of our fathers, we will love both friend and foe in all our strife, and preach thee too, as love knows how, by kindly words and virtuous life. So, I think this song has a good bringing together of the ideas that we're talking about from the perspective of, if I am... Uh, if I'm questioning whether God is who he says he is, how likely am I to share the gospel with someone? Not particularly. But when I gather with God's people and I'm renewed in my faith in that sense and my confidence is rekindled in God and who he is through hearing what God is doing in the lives of others, through um, seeing what God has said in his word, all those sorts of things, then then I'm in a position both to be more convinced that I really truly know and follow God, 
to live that out in day-to-day -day life and to express that faith to those around me. Yes? And like Elijah, we can have the sense that I'm the only one, and then that point he makes from Revelation 7-9, which is what you were saying, God's not just doing work here with us. God's doing work with other churches, with people from every other background and culture and language and so forth. Uh, third thing there, advance. Worship affects our sanctification. So when he says advance, he's not saying like the church is making progress like so much as he's saying that we're individually growing to be like Christ. He gives a number of passages there to illustrate that. When we join in corporate worship, God loves not only to change our minds, but to irrevocably change our hearts right then and there. The question I wanted to ask with, in connection with this is, what is the difference between information and motivation? Sunday mornings, um, I want to make sure that we understand God's Word accurately, but I also want us to be stirred in our hearts to do something about it, because usually, not always, but usually the problem is not lack of information. Usually the problem is, are we going to do it, or do we love God enough to follow what He said? You know, those sorts of ideas. And so, I think that this point has a couple of applications. One is, you don't have to think to yourself, well, this is something I'll think about and act on later in the week. You can have a conversation with God right then and there during the service. This is true. Um, I've not obeyed you in this way up to this point or recently. I'm purposing to do so when I get home. I am convinced of who you are, God. You know, all those sorts of ideas can be going through our mind in prayer and responding to God, tied to his word that's being spoken in connection with other believers, which then will affect what we do in the course of our lives. But, but, but sanctification, our hearts can be stirred even while we're just sitting there waiting to actually put it into practice when we, when we um, are, are, are done with the service. Um, so I think that that's a, a good point that he makes there. Uh, fourth, he says, accepting another's leading. Corporate worship demands that we discipline ourselves to respond and not only pursue God on our own terms. It is an opportunity to embrace being led and not always taking the lead. So um, I think that this is a... Um, an interesting point that he's making here. What do you guys think about this one? Is that is that good? Is that helpful? Is it true? 
Is there a benefit to being led by someone else in the context of worship? I was thinking about this, that if what he's saying is true and it's a good thing, then in what context do pastors who are leading churches have opportunity for this to be true? I think one respect would be um, that it can be helpful when other people are uh, leading the times of singing or leading the times of prayer, for example. Um, Jonathan, Jared, others helping us in different aspects of that. Um, because then it's an opportunity, I mean, and there's a sense in which it's not entirely true because I've said here's what we're the songs we're going to do on a particular Sunday or something like that. But, um, I mean, I think there is opportunity um, for those who are accompanying, for those who are leading the singing time to say, you know what, let's, um, here's a verse of scripture that comes to mind in connection with this song. And, um, um, or I feel like, at a particular point, maybe we need to pause and pray and think about what this song is saying. I'm not saying we have to make it an artificial or a contrived thing. And I think um, sometimes we can see bad models of it, like um, not in every church, but in some churches, uh, the person in charge of the worship seems to be, when that's the singing I should say more properly, seems to enjoy their job a little bit too much like like let's do this thing now and let's do this thing there and it can become a distraction but there's also a place to say you know what this is something that we need to stop and think about for a minute or you know whatever else so um i would just encourage you and i would encourage jared along the same lines if if there is a passage of scripture that connects well with the song that we're singing I'd be fine with you mentioning it. If there is uh, something that we really feel like we need to stop and pray about in connection with the truth of a song, something with connection with repentance, there's a place for that as well. And so um, my goal would be to oversee that, but it doesn't necessarily have to be me doing every last detail connected with it. And so um, I think there is value in being led and in... Uh, altogether participating in that. And then the fifth thing he says is accentuated joy, which um, uh, the other point he's making with accepting another's leading, if you're at home, you can say, I'm going to read this verse. I'm going to sing this song. I'm going to do this thing in the way and the place and the time and all that that I want to do it. When I come to church, there's a sense in which we are together 
submitting our preferences to maybe what is best for the whole church and not maybe just what we individually would prefer the most, that kind of thing. Um, and then the fifth point, accentuated joy. Our own awe is accentuated, our own adoration increased, our own joy doubled when we worship Jesus together. He says, uh, the secret of joy in corporate worship is not only self-forgetfulness, or to put it positively, preoccupation with Jesus and his glory, but also the happy awareness that we are not alone in having our souls satisfied in him. And I think there is something that is good for our souls in seeing that this is something that God is doing in other people too. And so that, I think, is one of the great benefits of gathering together in the context of, of worship in the church. So. Any other thoughts as we wrap up this chapter? Just thinking about the starting point again. I do think that when you get summarizing the whole thing, there's no doubt that we can't have one without the other in regards to the primary Right. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely something to consider. How are we doing in all these different areas of our lives? What else? One one other thought that I don't, not sure if I said earlier was, um, we tend to think in our culture of worship equals music and music equals worship. And we should instead think of all of these elements as contributing to worship. We can be worshiping God in the context of being gathered together with his word, with praying, with fellowshipping with one another before and after the service. All those things are connected with worship. And so, anyways, we'll wrap up there. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to consider these truths. We pray that as we come before you this morning, we would not just hear things and do things, but that we would be drawn closer to you. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.